town ain't small, it's a little of both, they say. That ball club may be minor league, but at least it's triple A. We sit below the Marlboro Man, above the Rockville Wall. We do the wave all by ourselves. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show. This is the Arms Race with Jim Colonel, episode 410 on our network. Before we get going today, I uh, first want to welcome Jim back to his show. Jim, welcome back here on a on a snowy Tuesday for you, a rainy Tuesday for me down south. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm I'm sitting here in my kitchen. It's snowing up here in Connecticut, so it's uh, winter has come. It was it was 48 degrees last week, and it was 17 degrees this morning. So uh, I got the fire going and ready to go. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. We've uh, we've got a couple of uh, sponsors want to. Make sure our audience is aware of and we ask you just to kind of listen through the the ad reads here 90 seconds a piece just to give them the support uh before we get to the read sponsor read just want to remind blackout coffee has uh been very supportive of us be awake not woke is their slogan and if you go to their website and you type in jim's code here we've got jimc20 uh for his code make sure you type in 20 percent off on on jim for 2024 and then jaw bats uh, newest bat uh allowed by Major League Baseball. Go to their website, type in RVG, get 20%, I'm sorry, 15% off all apparel, all bats, all everything there. Great, very well-made maple bat. Jeff Fry's using it right now down at the Red Sox Fantasy Camp. So I know he he said he's stinging them all over the place. So it's a bat that works. So Jaw Bats, RVG, all caps at checkout will get you their discount on us for 2024. And with that, we'll give you our two ad reads right here. Liquid IV is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being. Their hydration multiplier is a great tasting non-GMO electrolyte drink mix powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water alone. Hydration isn't only for people training for championships and marathons. It's about daily maintenance. I use it when I travel, watch my kids play in soccer or basketball games, for back-to-back conference calls, or even neighborhood walks. Proper functional hydration is essential, and Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. For me, it's the Liquid IV flavors. They offer 12 unique flavors, from strawberry lemonade to Concord grape, my favorite, acai berry. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. It contains five essential vitamins with three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks. It's made from quality ingredients, non-GMO, free from gluten, dairy, and soy. That's why I'm asking you, take a look at this. This is for real people. It's got real flavors. It's real hydrating. And you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code RVG at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you stop when you shop Better Hydration today using our promo code RVG at liquidiv.com. Zencaster. How to start podcasting with Zencaster. It's now the all-in-one solution making podcasting easy. It's the ultimate web-based podcasting solution. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Being a creator has never been easier. Why did I choose Zencaster? Three years ago, I had never listened to a podcast. 
Now I've successfully produced almost 400 podcasts in the last two and a half years, all using Zencaster, and it's so easy. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio quality sound and up to 4,000 videos with your guests. Feel a sense of Zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. And it's all in one. If you have thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. What am I asking from you? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code, all capitals, RVG, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Well, there we go. Job bats, blackout coffee, Zencaster, liquid IV. So what a nice array of supporters there with that episode 410. Let's get rolling here. Jim, last show, I mean, dazzled us with, I mean, going in and out with the different analytics. And uh, we, we talked a lot about whip. We got into a little bit of war. But uh, you wanted to start a little bit today with the spin rate too, right? Spin rate and whip kind of review with the audience and bring them up to speed before we get rolling today. Yeah, um, let's uh, just a real quick review. Um, you might have some new listeners here or, you know, people got a lot going on in their lives and they probably, you know, might forget what we talked about last uh, last podcast. Uh, but it was all in the context of what the analytics supposedly are showing and why they're using these analytics to evaluate the values of pitchers, their performance, um, and also their future performance and, and a cost value as far as their their compensation is concerned. So we talked about spin rate. We talked about whip and and, and we broke it down really simple. Um, when you look at spin rates, right, which is, say, an example, 2700 revolutions per minute. Um, we break it down to a 60 foot throw uh, to the plate um, that comes out to plus or minus the number one pitcher, number 40 pitcher for spin rate for curveball is one or two more revolutions per throw per pitch to the plate. So as with other things we talked about, I go, is that really a difference maker that my curveball spins two more times than your curveball? Uh, we talked about I, I talked about whip and some of the statistics. And and uh, once again, what I see, the questions I have when I broke down whip and we looked at the number one whip and the number 40 whip, there was a difference of when you calculate it to a five inning start, which is the average start. We're talking one or one, one and a half, two walks or hits per five innings. So I said, once again, is that really a difference maker if I'm going to evaluate a pitcher? Because as I mentioned, I could give up two hits and a walk and a three-run homer in the first inning and throw four shutout innings, and I could another pitcher another day I can go out and give out two hits per inning and throw a shutout, and I'm going to have a whip that's considerably higher. So we talked about it in the context of there's always facts and there's always statistics that you can use to evaluate an ind- a pitcher or, or anything we talked about, any issue, but you need to put it in the context. So I tried to put it in some context there. Um, so with that, the, what I looked at was war because everybody talks about war and we begin to, we spoke to that briefly in the last podcast. I don't understand that. I actually went on the website and looked at the nine categories or the eight categories that they use. And I really couldn't figure it out, but that's a, you know, that's a separate issue. I'm not here to speak about that. 
What I did was I thought it was interesting because you and I spoke about it last podcast and you kind of planted a seed. We spoke about war as winds above replacement. So the question I had or you had was above what replacement, right? So I'm assuming I might be wrong or incorrect here is that above replacement of the pitchers or the, or the pitchers at that time that you're competing against, right? That would make common sense. So I said, okay, let me, let me go back in history here. And I'm going to look at the wars of a couple years, the war statistics of Verlander, Scherzer, and Cole. Okay, they're probably within everybody's list, the top three out of the five top pitchers the last five, six, seven years, right? Makes sense. I just picked those three out. And then I said, okay, let me go back. I'm going to have some fun with this. And I went to Baseball Almanac online, right, all the statistics. And I looked at Koufax, Gibson, Carlton, Jenkins, Ryan, Seaver, and Maddox, right? So I covered the, the legends from the last 30 or 40 years. And this is what I found, which was kind of interesting. Once again, what are they looking at? Why are they using this statistic? What does it mean? What is the reference point? How is it relative, right? So if I looked at Verlander's war for 2012, it was 8.1. His record was 17 and 8. He had an ERA of 2.64. He threw 230 innings, 238 innings, which for nowadays is a real workman's load. He had 239 Ks and he had six complete games. Okay. So I'm going to go down. Keep that in mind. 8.1, he was 17 and 8 with a 2.64 ERA. Just one question before we show our audience. So the, the 8.1 number, the wins above replacement, that is Verlander's, that, that's his value based on consistent performance over 162 games over the average player during his time. Is that? I would, I, I would assume so. Right? And that's that's kind of how I'm gathering. Yeah. So just so right. I, I think we, I think you did a great job last time and you mentioned here, you, you put it all in a context. And I think, I think that's the best way to, that's for our audience who doesn't understand war, maybe look at it that way when we're throwing the number out at you, 8.1. 8. Yeah, because I'm making the assumption it's not wins above replacement of every pitcher who ever threw a baseball. Yeah, I, no, it would be crazy. Common sense, right? Okay, so so here we go, right? So keep that in mind. It was 2012, 8.1, 17 and 8, 264. I go to Sandy Koufax, 1964. His war was 7.3. That's almost one point less than uh, Justin. His record was 19 and 5. He had a 1.74 ERA. He threw 223 innings. He struck out 306 batters, and he had 15 complete games. Okay? Now, let's go Koufax the next year. 1965, 8.1 war. Now, that's the same war as Mr. Verlander. Okay? His record that year was 26 and 8. Verlander was 17 and 8. His, Verlander's ERA was 2.64. Sandy's was 2.04. Sandy Koufax threw 335 innings that year. That's almost two seasons for 80% of the pitchers in Major League Baseball today. He had 382 strikeouts. That's 150 more strikeouts than Mr. Verlander. He had 27 complete games. I think if you totaled the entire pitching staff for Major League Baseball today, I think the number was 14 last year. Okay? So just a couple more for fun. Okay? I looked at, let's see here, Mr. Seaver, 1969. Let's move it up a little bit about, you know, a few years. In 1969, Tom Seaver, Mr. Tur Tom Terrific, was 25 and 7. He had a 2.1 ERA. 
He threw 273 innings. He had 208 strikeouts. He had 18 complete games. Okay? Greg Maddox, the last one. Move it up another 10 years. In 1998, Maddox's war was 6.6. Okay? Verlander was 8.1. His record was 18 and 8. His ERA was 2.22. He threw 245 innings. Now, obviously, the complete games was lower. He threw nine complete games. So we were starting to see during the Maddox era, throwing less complete games. So when I look at these facts, right, I'm not saying that there's not a place for war or war can tell a certain story. I just wonder, my question is, when you read about right from writers and you listen to them talk about the game or the pundits, the first thing they go to is war. Okay. And my question is, well, then why is Verlander's war 8.1? And the ones I just spoke to, those legends, their their wars were less and their season that year was that much better. Some of them exponentially greater than Verlander. And I'm not knocking Justin Verlander. And obviously he's an accomplished pitcher, but I'm trying to figure out what are they using to analyze pitchers? Because they're always comparing today's hurlers or today's batters with the, you know, the, with their grandfathers and, 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 and the generations before. And they always point to war as a statistic that says, oh, hey, his war is much better. He's a better, he's a better player. He had a better year. And I'm going, the numbers don't tell me that. So I'm once again, curious, have some questions. I would love somebody to explain that to me. I think your your approach is ideal because the you know the numbers are they they just I guess they they smother us a little bit when we watch games or read things now it's all you'll see seven or eight acronyms before you hear anything from a baseball standpoint about a player but if the numbers are used to pose questions to start dialogue to have conversation to me they they should be used they should be thought of as the English language not as mathematics and Unfortunately, as, as you pointed out too, a lot of times writers who don't have the baseball background use it as their absolute entry point into baseball. And I would love for more people like, like you to be in front of them and then the, in the eloquent way you do it and just not challenge, but just ask, tell me, what do you, what do you mean? How does this make sense based on what I said? So I challenge our audience too. I mean, anybody that's out there, we have a lot of analytics people that listen, write to us, let us know what your thoughts are, uh, you know feed us some information as to how maybe we may be wrong in our approach here. But um, yeah, I didn't mean to digress, but uh, I think it's all, all, all fair points to make. Uh, regarding well, that. I think your point is well made. And, and, and I don't bring this up to, um, to, to throw writers under the bus. Obviously, they're writing about the game. Um, I would have to believe, once again, common sense tells me where there's a meeting in the GM's office and they're talking about pitcher, the first thing that comes up is war. So I, I don't think the writers have made this up. Um, I think they they write about what they see. Um, they're not looking to create the news. Uh, they're looking to report the news. Um, so my question would be the Alleged same question I would have with the analytics experts and the general managers going, okay, um, why is war the end all and be all? Let's put it that way. It's, it's part of the equation. I could understand that. But when anybody just says, hey, look at his war, he's much better than this other pitcher. Or this other hitter, I'm going, no, he's not. <laughs> not for that year. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I yeah. Hey, before we get we move on, this ties into what I talked about last, uh, and, and you mentioned about the analytics and, and the numbers, right? And and as 
we get more into the numbers and there's more analytics that's utilized to evaluate a pitcher in just pure numbers, we, we begin to devalue the ability for the pitcher to stand on the mound. And we talked about this last podcast and shut the other team down and actually get a W, right? So as all these numbers become more prominent, it dilutes the, the um, I, I just term the determination and guts of the pitcher and his ability to go out there and get a W, whether it's for five innings, eight innings or nine innings, right? And as an example, we talked about, um, you know, a quality start, six innings, three innings, three earned runs or less, right? And I'm going, okay, um, if in context of, of winning a game or pitching to win a game, um, if you give up two runs when your team is winning three nothing, that's different than giving up three, one, three runs in six innings when your team is winning one nothing. Right. And obviously that will have a tendency to balance out during the season. But if I'm looking at pitchers, I want to know who has the ability to pitch to the game and understand what they need to get done so they can walk off the mound and give their team a W. And I just think to your point, we were speaking, the more you include numbers that are just black and white without context, it dilutes and takes away from the, the big factor is. Who can win bowl games? Who's got the ability to get a W? The part that scares me is I I love smart. That's uh, the first thing I said to you when we the first, very first time we talked. Um, I love smart people. I love smart ideas. I love ideas I don't understand, so I can learn. The part that concerns me about the numbers is not that they're they're getting above our heads in terms of what do they mean. It's that very fact that they're very much opaque. And they describe or they they define sometimes somebody's career or money earnings um, or whether or not they have a job from a manager or a, a pitcher or a hitter. Uh, they're making life altering moves based on these very opaque numbers sometimes without context. That's the frightening part to me. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you're, you're making point. You're bringing this up to our audience today. Well, yeah, I mean, to your point, right, <laughs> the uh, there was an article I read in. I like to peruse MLB.com MLB and, the, and the athletic. I, I like to see what writers are saying, and I pick up on some of this stuff. There was a writer who talked about a hurler, and I'll get into it later specifically, about how well he did um, the last month or so of the season, right? And, and his comment was his ERA was 2.8 or whatever. And he goes, oh, that's really good, but ERA can be deceiving. And I go to myself, I'm going, yes, it can be, uh, because obviously – you know, you can get you can shut out a team that's, uh, you know, 20 and 60 and you can give up five runs against a team that's, you know, 60 and 20. So, you know, like as I said, it, it it has a tendency to even out there in the season, but it doesn't tell the entire story. Right. We talked about what how do we put the pieces together to tell the entire story? But his comment was it can be deceiving. But now we have better statistics to be able to paint a more accurate picture to evaluate a hurler. And I'm going, Really? Your spin rate and whip are more accurate. That's what you're. That's what you want to rely on, rather than ERA or maybe combine all all of them together, plus his wins, plus his you know what his innings pitched, and come up with you know something that's uh, a little more uh, a little more accurate. That's I just kind of left at that comment. I would. I, I, I'll, you have to send it to me because what that whoever that writer was, what they did was. My issue with with baseball some, and all sports sometimes is 
the people on the outside that maybe never played it or are trying to control it, they treat it like it's a puzzle, like there's a finite number of pieces. And what basically what that, that writer said is, I just took a puzzle that was 250 pieces and I made it a thousand pieces, but it's still the same damn puzzle. It comes back to the same picture. Baseball is more of a mystery where, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen from minute to minute. You can't predict what's going to happen from time to time. You can try, um, but all these little pockets of baseball or football or basketball, um, they just have to be framed in a context to support that particular situation and then just enjoy it for what it is and, and stop trying to control it. The sport will take care of itself. And I, that, that's again, sorry to take the, I derail us sometimes, but I, I thought about that puzzle analogy the other day when I, when I got hit with another number, which I like them, but, um, you know, all of this is just taking the picture and dividing it up into more pieces. Now it still comes out to be the puzzle, still finite. Baseball is not a finite thing. And that's, that's my biggest issue with these guys. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and quite frankly, um, from my perspective, you could label it a puzzle, but there's a caveat here. And as as you said, a couple of podcasts ago, there's always a, but right. It's a puzzle, but all the pieces are not the same size. Okay, this is not a this is not a puzzle you buy. It's got a thousand pieces and the same size, and you just got to figure out what colors match up. This is a puzzle with many many pieces, and they're all different sizes. Meaning each one carries a different weight and a different impact on the result you're looking for or the result you're looking to evaluate. And we'll talk about that later. But yeah, it could be a puzzle. But they're not the same size pieces. <laughs> yeah, the only, the only thing that's finite about baseball, I guess, is the you know there are some things, the outs, the innings, uh, whatnot, but all these other performance things in between. It's got to let players play. They're not dividends. You can't divide them up like stocks and bonds, and you know, think it's going to come into a hole when you do that. So, sorry, oh, I agree. I agree. I'll let you, I agree. let you move on to your next your next piece. Well, you know, um, that was kind of you know in 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 speaking of the analytics and looking at some of them. Um, and, and kind of given me a, a, an initiative and an interest in researching it because I, you know, like anything else, I see a statistics or I see a point of view and I want to understand why they're thinking that and what the statistics or the facts, whether it supports it or doesn't support it, whatever. So, you know, that was just in the context of, 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 of what they use today to evaluate a pitcher, which I, I, I don't completely understand. Um, but in the context of the overall program that we are speaking of in my, in my interest and intent in helping young pitchers, I just want to revisit this velocity issue again, um, because I think it's really important. And I spoke to it the last couple of podcasts. And, you know, as I continue to read different articles where pitchers are touted for the fact that they throw 102, whether it's Jordan Hicks or Duran or anybody, um, and it's 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 labeled, you know, gas and it's labeled, you know, uh, you know, just tremendous velocity. Um, I, I once again step back and go, I, I don't understand. I don't I, I do understand why they do it. But I said, that's not true. OK, um, Jordan Hicks, there was an article this past week where the writer was touting that Jordan Hicks is average velocity for a fastball is 101. And he hit 105. And that was the headline, right? And I go, okay, he's got some gas. But here's the scientific fact and the reality. If Jordan Hicks towed the rubber against Steve Carlton, he would be throwing somewhere between 91 to 93, possibly 94 miles an hour. Why? Why? Explain why. We've done it before, but just remind the audience why that. Yeah, I mean, because... Today, they measure out of the hand with StatCast. 35, 40 years ago, they measured crossing the plate. 
Okay, and it's been scientifically proven that it's seven to nine percent difference between out of the hand crossing a plate for the and for people who don't have a degree in physics, it's called gravity drag. Okay, because as an example, I might have used this before. I researched and say you have a you know a ball speed of one forty to one sixty. Okay, off the tee, and I'm sure there's some professional golfers who are in that range. When that ball travels 350, 360 yards and it lands, the ball speed is not 160. It is maybe 35 to 40 or 50, whatever that number may be. Why does it land? Because it loses velocity. Okay. So getting back to what impacts youth pitchers and what they're being sold. Okay. Um, For lack of a better term, I think it's a significant injustice to youth pitchers to continually talk about and hype up this velocity at, you know, and 100 is the magic number. That's a lot of glitz. If the writer wrote the article and said, Hicks is throwing 92 miles an hour. Well, that wouldn't sell the article. That wouldn't, that wouldn't have any sizzle. So it's, Hey, Jordan Hicks averages one-on-one. He's got a lot of gas. I go, yeah, that is true. Today, scientifically, he throws 101. But once again, put him on the mound against Steve Carlton, take the jugs gun out, and lefty has more gas than him. So I, as far as my interest in helping youth pitchers, that's one of the things that I'm concerned about, that um, Major League Baseball, once again, writers report the news. They don't create the news. But at some point in time, there has to be a recognition that, okay, yes, it's one-on-one. But don't forget, young boys and girls, that was really 92, 35, 40 years ago. So what are we really talking about? There may be, and I'm sure there is, pitchers, more pitchers throwing the Steve Carlton 95 today, okay? But they're not throwing Steve Carlton 103. Okay, that's that's just the reality of it. Right. So that's the first thing, you know, not to belabor that point, but that is really, really important when your young and your son is getting a pitching lesson or looking to develop as a hurler. And all he's being told is he has to throw the ball harder because it's all about velocity. And look at these guys in the major leagues who were, you know, breaking the speed of sound. I'm going, that's not true. That is not true. You're being sold the bill of goods. That's just the bottom line. That's well, the bottom line. There's also a context with velocity that gets missed when people put max velocity out there, or that's their ultimate goal. Uh, a 95 mile an hour fastball is going to seem a lot faster when it follows a, a well placed, uh, well located, well controlled changeup. And those are, or wherever the fastball is located, if it's a little bit up in the zone, it's going to appear a little bit faster. So, these are things that are being missed when parents are watching YouTube videos or Instagram or whatever, TikTok videos of some kid, you know, getting three crow hops and no shirt on and firing it as hard as he can at a wall and uh, seeing a score go up on the wall. First, we don't even know if that score is real. Um, it could be inflated. And second, there's no, again, we hate to keep belaboring the point, but there's no context to it at all. Well, yeah. And, and I have friends that I mentioned before who kind of shared this ride with me the last five or six years and they send me videos. So I saw a video the other day and I, I really, 
really was laughing. There was a video where there were six pitchers lined up in a pitching facility, and there was a radar gun behind each of them. And every time they threw, the radar gun lit up, 88, 89, 90, 91. They were, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-old pitchers. And I'm looking at their throwing motions, and I'm going, that they are horrendous, okay? And I've used this expression before, but I use it all the time. The pitchers I work with, I wouldn't let them throw a ping pong ball with the motions I saw in that video, right? Now, coupled with when it's lighting up at 92 and they go, whoa, I'm only eight miles behind, eight miles an hour behind Jordan Hicks, right? And I go, okay, but let's put this in context. You're throwing 92. Let's take a conservative 6% of that. That would be, you know, seven miles an hour. Uh, five miles an hour, whatever the case may be. So you're only throwing 87, 88, which is pretty good, but it's not 92. So once again, that myth perpetuates itself at that level when they go, wow, I'm lighting up the radar gun. Yeah. But if you, if you were born 35 years ago, you wouldn't have been lighting up the radar gun. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you saw some, uh, you're always unique with the way you, you see things. And you sent me some information on some golfers that uh, I don't know if we're skipping skipping some steps here, but if that that kind of proved some of your point in terms of the the size and the the energy and, and whatnot that they're hitting a golf ball. I know it's different; they're using a club. But um, does that does that fit into what we're talking about right now? Yeah, oh, without a doubt. Let me let me just, if you don't mind, let me go back just real quickly with the velocity. We spoke about this, and I don't want to and I rehash it for your listening for the listening audience, but. The, the, the other part of that velocity myth is that you mentioned it before about the changeup. It turns the pitching paradigm upside down, okay, where pitching is, if you talk to any elite f- former pitcher or present-day pitcher, um, it, it, it's all about, in this order, it's command, change of speed, movement, and velocity, okay? If you want to be a successful pitcher, that's those are the four tenets that you want to live by and, and and strive to achieve in that order. OK, I don't care if you throw the ball 120 miles an hour. If you can't hit the broadside of a barn, you're no help to me on the mound. OK, but to your point, I don't care whether you throw 82, 88 or 98. If you have a change up, you can control. OK, that 82 mile an hour fastball will look 87 miles an hour. That 92-mile-an-hour fastball will look 97 miles an hour, okay? Because if you talk to any hitter, okay, any accomplished hitter, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who played for the Los Angeles Dodger organization, really talented, got hurt. And I sent him some of my stuff, and he looks at it, and, and on velocity, he goes, listen, he goes, when I got up at the plate, I didn't care how hard the pitcher threw. If he had a changeup, I knew it was going to be a tougher day for me. Okay, because I, I, I needed to be able to I knew he was going to try to upset my timing. And he said, I can gear up for the fastball. It's difficult for me to gear up for the changeup. So not to belabor that point, I don't understand if that's the precept, if that's the if that's the recognitions from the hitter's perspective. Why wouldn't you want to pitch to that as a pitcher instead of saying, I just want to break the door down and throw a fastball through the wall? That's my goal and objective. Okay. So when we take that and look at youth pitchers, that's extremely detrimental to the development. Forget about their health at this point. It's detrimental to the development because it's command changeup. Let's put this out. I was talking to Jim Cott about this. If you have a pitcher and he throws, I don't care, 88, 95 miles an hour, 
And his command, his command was perfect. And he could throw on the hands, low and away, any time he wanted to. That's the only pitch he would need. The reason you need other pitches, because you can't do that. Now, the Greg Maddoxes of the world were extremely successful because they got pretty close. Jake DeGrom got pretty close, but he, he wasn't too healthy as we know it. And that's another conversation. So what do you need to do? You need to develop a second pitch. Based on my previous comment, especially what I see with youth pitchers, and even in the major leagues, I've had conversations with managers and people going, why do you even, you know, <clears throat> why do you even graduate a pitcher from a ball who can't throw a changeup? I don't understand that. But to, your, to the point of the command, they're going, why wouldn't you then, as your second pitch, learn how to throw a changeup before you threw a cutter or a slider or a curveball? That's for a starting pitcher. Obviously, relief pitchers are a different conversation, but there's a relief pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers who does extremely well, and he's got a great changeup. Okay, so I don't want to belabor that point, but it was important regarding the velocity, the velocity conversation. Yeah, name, give the four tenets again of pitching just so we oh, can that. Uh, number one is command. I want to be able to take my, my, th- my two, my three, four pitches, and I want to be able to pound the strike zone, and I want to be able to throw the ball up and in, low and away, when I want to, okay? What, ahead in the count, behind in the count, okay? Now, that's a process that has to be learned. But that's your goal and objective, okay? To learn how to throw a 0-2 changeup or 0-2 curveball, okay, low and away and throw a curveball uh, when you're behind in account for a strike. Same thing with the fastball, your other pitches. And the second one is, is change, change of speed. Learn how to throw a changeup. And you learn it by playing catch. You learn it by throwing it into the bullpen. And then you take it to the game when your team is way ahead. You can use it when the, when the downside of the risk is minimal. But that's how you learn how to throw a changeup. It does take some time. But the pitchers I work with, I'll be honest with you, it's for me, it's easier to learn how to throw a changeup than it is a curveball. Or it's just as easy to throw a changeup. Okay. And I'll give you one quick anecdotal story, which is pretty funny. <clears throat> when I coached baseball for 12 years, every year, okay, and I was big on this. I would work with the pitchers and I would talk about the, the need to learn and the importance of learning how to throw a changeup. And I was only assistant coach, so I could push so far, right? So I'd have a bet every year, and I'd offer this to all the starting pitchers, okay? At the end of the season, if anybody is able or willing to throw 12 pitches, 12 change-ups in the game, okay, I will buy them dinner for two. Their mother, their sister, their brother, their aunt, their girlfriend, I don't care. In 12 years, I never had to pay off. Oh, my God. Never had to pay off. Because my feeling was, or my observation was, hey, I'm being taught to throw velocity. And if I throw a changeup, that doesn't show that I have any testosterone. That just shows I'm not willing to throw the ball through the wall. You know, and I, you know, I, I throw it out there. We'd work in the bullpen. You know, I did my thing where I said, hey, let's work on this. And when they went into the game, they were on their own. And I'm telling you, in 12 years, I never paid out. Wow. Never paid out. When you said twelve, I was like, "Oh, that's or twelve or twelve changeup is that's that's easy." That's yeah. uh, but oh, I had guys never got I, I had guys never got close, never got close. If there was an over, if there was an over and under, Dave, the over and under would have been about six. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so I just said true story, true story. Never paid out, never. Paid, and I said, you know what, restaurant of your choice, anywhere you want to go. 
anywhere you want to go. That sounds like my my bat, probably the equivalent of my basketball bet, and I never had to do this in 20 years. I told a player because I wanted kids to attack the rim. This was in the era of side to side basketball. Nowadays, everybody attacks the rim. I want you want them to pass more, but I said if anybody picks up five offensive fouls there, where they they get five charges called on them because they're attacking the rim so hard, I'll give you my car. And uh, I never had to give my car away. I think that would have been illegal to do anyway at the college level, but um, just to kind of get in their mindset. I, opposite mentality that you're saying where I wanted kids to go more aggressive faster. Um, but the same thing, something had been ingrained in their head for so long that they just wouldn't challenge the norm. Yeah. Or, or, or here's Jim Colonel, the assistant coach, who's a volunteer. Uh, and, and as, as I, as I told him and I, and the head coach used to tell him, it actually cost me money to coach. Cause when I started coaching, our daughter Caroline was young. So I had to pay for a babysitter. So it actually would cost me money to go to Danbury to coach high school baseball. So I'm going there going, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I pay this pitching instructor like $1,500 a year or $2,000 a year. Why am I going to listen to Jim Colonel, the assistant volunteer coach, who's got like a seven-year-old daughter who's got a babysit? Pitch pitch, pitch for the Yankees, though. I was a head Division I basketball coach when I offered that, so maybe my car wasn't nice enough for them to want to drive it. I never thought of that. I, I never, you know, hey, listen, I would never say anything. Uh, you know, the fact, you know, it, uh, half of them probably knew I didn't, that if they if they knew they pitch, I pitched professionally, it's because the head coach would tell them I, I wasn't going to say anything. It said if they couldn't figure it out by what I was telling them, I said, we're, we're okay. I could live with that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I hear anyway. you. So, the, so sh- share a couple, a little bit of the golfer, because I thought oh, that was sure. very easy. So anyway, um, you know, we've talked about this in the past and a lot of the research I've done is is comparing the kinetic timing of pitchers to other athletes. And I've compared it to, to, to athletes across the board. So one of the athletes that it, uh, fascinates me is golfers, because I play golf and I take golfing lessons from this great guy in uh, Brookfield, Connecticut, who has explained the golf swing to me extremely well in like 10 seconds, right? And um, explained to me what I got to do and all about kinetic timing. How do you use your lower half to maximize getting the club through the through the ball, through the, the ball to maximize your distance and, and accuracy. And anybody who's played golf, they know that's a story, right? So I'm watching a golf tournament the other day, and it was a Sony, and I see Keegan Bradley there and tall drink of water, kind of looked like Chris Sale. And I said, let me just see what his driving accuracy uh, distance was. So he's like 315 yards average last year. So I go, okay, let me let me let me do this a little further. So I went online and I Googled the, um, i sorry, I, I checked the 2023 PGA driving distance leaders, right? I wanted to see how big they were, right? Because I want to see whether they're muscling the ball and that's why they're, you know, they got big arms and that's why they're driving the ball 340 yards. Number one was Rory McIlroy. He's all of 5'9", 161 pounds. His average was 326. Peter Quest, I think it's K-U-E-S-T, is 6'1", 170. That's, that's, a, that's a Hulk, right? His average is 321. Get this one. Mathun Pereira, if I have that name correct, he was tied at number two. He was 5'4", 155. His driving average is 322. Number four was Cameron Champ, 6'175", six, six 317. Last but not least, number seven, Cameron Young, 5'11", 185, 315. So for all the experts out there and for your viewing audience, I'd like to know what these five golfers are doing. I think I know what they're doing. 
for them to drive the ball 320, now that's the average, right? I watch golf tournaments where Rory's out there about 365, 370. And um, my question is, how do they do it? Because they can deadlift? Um, because they're got really strong arms? They got a strong back? They got a strong shoulder? They can do a lot of push-ups? The answer is that they have proper kinetic timing between their lower half and their upper half. And they use their lower half as the engine to be able to drive the golf ball, the golf club through a tremendous club head speed to create tremendous ball speed to drive the ball down the fairway. Okay. So my question, like anything else, I go, okay, golfers do that. Why don't pitchers? Why don't they use proper kinetic timing where they generate and create energy from the ground up to transfer that energy from the lower half to their upper half, to their arm, to the baseball, to create maximum velocity and to create maximum and a consistent release? Because these golfers here, a good portion of them, this is not a long drive contest, okay, where they're just, you know, driving it out 450 yards into the parking lot. Most of these guys are pretty consistent, right? So they're using kinetic timing to create balance and stability. If you look at Rory McIlroy's swing, or they do this if you watch golf tournaments, and they'll give you the slow motion after it, and they also give you the, 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 the real speed, Rory McIlroy creates a lot of torque and energy, but he is balanced and stable through his entire motion, okay, as with all these golfers. How many major league pitchers can you say that about? When they throw the baseball, they are balanced and stable through their motion. Okay. Now, I don't think you can say that Rory McIlroy or any of these five golfers I talked about or mentioned, okay, were losing anything by creating balance and stability. Quite the opposite. I think they were gaining a lot creating balance and stability. So once again, my question is, why wouldn't major league pitchers and professional pitchers also want to create the same balance and stability and lower half timing, ball timing, to create maximum velocity and maximum consistent release? And also, by the way, as with golfers, right, you don't want to, you know, you want to create some stability because you're trying to keep your back healthy. With pitchers, you want to create some balance and stability and energy from the ground up to keep your arm healthy. That's my question. Yeah. Oh, I, I think it would be an interesting experiment. I don't think any golfers would take us up on this, but they decided for one year in the PGA Tour, they were going to reward the golfers. They were going to encourage golfers to just hit the balls hard and as far as they could, regardless of direction, and uh, start rank ordering them that way. Uh, you know, seeing a guy hit the ball 400 yards, 45 degrees to the left, but he hit it at 170 miles an hour. And uh, I don't think we'd be celebrating that person with a green jacket. No, end. I think that's very comparable. I think that there is a there's a sweet spot there. I mean, obviously, Rory Rack, Rory, Rory McIlroy, these golfers are not averaging 200, 200 yards down the fairway, creating this right. They're creating as much balance and agility. They're creating as much energy as they can from the lower half with with ballot, with balance and stability yeah. to allow them to drive the ball as far as they can with as much accuracy as they can. And even there, once in a while, you know when the timing's off because the kinetic timing of a golf swing is exponentially greater 
than the kinetic timing of a pitching motion. If anybody's played golf and threw a pass, thrown a baseball, that's just a fact. <laughs> that's yeah. just a fact. Yeah, because any any t- anything you do, whether it's hitting a golf ball, throwing a baseball, making a decision, speed without accuracy is dangerous. And you know, imagine somebody doing that in their mind. Let's see how many let's see how many decisions I can make in the next thirty seconds. Forget about accuracy. Uh, your your life's going to be in disarray potentially uh, in that regard. So I, I I tend to adhere to that. And your body will tell you how hard you can throw, or how hard you can swing. As you said, based on balance, your body knows. Uh, itself better than we do in our brains. And if you do mechanics the right way, and as you, I mean, you, you wrote some nice notes, uh, corrective notes for uh, my son, Tanner, who's a catcher, uh, middle infielder. And he was, I think my daughter put up a video um, of him, or I may, I may have texted to you too, of him throwing, uh, just throwing, getting ready in, in preparation for long toss. And you made some corrective adjustments just based on, I think it was three seconds, a three second video. And uh, eerily accurate um, in that regard. So I kind of throw that to the audience as you're you're talking here. I know we're not video yet; we're audio. Um, and as we we start presenting your your uh, website with all the video on it, that you know, lock into the words and lock into what's being impressed by by Jim here, and <clears throat> you know, take it seriously because your pitching life depends on it. Not to get uh, dramatic, but. I don't know. What, 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 where are we at? Are we at the uh, the book yet? The book. Oh, the- yeah, hang on a second. Uh, you know, with, with that in mind for your audience, right? If you have young pitchers or parents that are listening, and it ties into the PGA, uh, and it ties into comments I've gotten. Okay, I have received from major league pitchers, people involved in the game, executives, et cetera, Some brief conversations I've had that people I know who were involved in the game, and their response has been, "Well, um, uh, pitchers can't change." Pitches can't change. Okay. Now, I disagree with that. Okay. And 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 the reason is is number one, the pitchers I've worked with who are anywhere from 14 to 22 years old, but more importantly, talking with the, we're talking to, to the PGA tour. I watched a tournament, probably I think it was two years ago, where Justin uh, uh, John Ram and and um, Dustin Johnson were in the third round that were paired together. And I was laughing because they couldn't hit a fairway. I think they hit one fairway between them. And, and, and Johnson wasn't in the woods. Several of his shots were in the parking lot. And the, and the commentator, the analyst, actually was making a comment about how they couldn't control their drives. Okay? The next day, I turned it back on, and I watched a little golf on TV, and the analyst was talking as Dustin Johnson got to the tee for the first hole. He goes, well, let me tell you. He goes, um, Johnson went to the um, driving range, uh, range after the round, and worked an hour to try to figure out what he was doing wrong. And he, he, he found something and he went back the next day before the round and worked on it again for about 45 minutes. Now, there's a good number of golfers that do that all the time. But the key is that he went out the next day and hit all the fairways and won the golf tournament. So once again, my question based on observations, OK, based on my research, my experience and what I see, if a PGA golfer in the middle of the tournament, can change and make adjustments in his golf swing. And once again, I said the kinetic timing of to be able to generate and be able to create timing between your lower half and your and your club as opposed to just release the baseball is exponentially more difficult to do just in general than create a fundamental pitching motion. If he can do that in the middle of a round, why can't a professional pitcher take three weeks in November 
to work on his throwing motion to make a couple adjustments. I, I once again, my question, I don't understand it. There's another one I'll post to you uh, before we get to the books and the quote. If we're if we, we have we have more pitching gurus on every corner than Starbucks right now in our country, and we have more kids playing baseball probably than any country in the world. Why is it that at the major league level, the highest levels right now, we have to outsource our pitching to Japan? Yeah, I, I, it's. Well, I, I think that as as far as general managers go, um, they're looking for you know in their minds the best pitchers they can. Okay, and I think that you know that speaks to Kevin Kernan's column this past week on Ball Nine, the Ponzi scheme, where he's talked about the lack of development with pitchers. Um, and and as we've spoken, and I believe um, regarding development and injuries and performance, there's many pieces of this puzzle. And my issue has always been people look at one or two pieces, right? But when I look at developmental factors, I I have identified in my mind, I've put together eight developmental factors that impact a pitcher uh, regarding their arm health, regarding their development uh, and overall, right? So if you look at it, tying into Kevin's column, um, I look at these factors in this order, uh, which is how I weigh them. Number one is DNA. You can't change it. You can't add to it, right? And as an example, <clears throat> Justin Verlander had Tommy John surgery at 2,800 innings. His average fastball velocity is 94.3. I got this off of StatCast. Walker Buehler's had two Tommy John surgeries before 680 innings. His average fastball velocity is 95.2, once again, off of StatCast. So I would think that the average layman would say they both had the same gas. One pitched 2,800 innings before he had Tommy John surgery. The other ones had two before 680 innings. I have broken down both of their motions. They are identical. They are identical as far as phase movements and lower half ball timing. So once again, as an observation, I would say Justin's got a lot better DNA. Okay. Other factors, yes. But DNA is probably to me the number one factor. Number two, which for Major League Baseball and professional and baseball experts is last, probably not not even on the list, but for me, it's number two, how you throw the baseball. Because I'll make it simple for for the listening audience. 95 miles an hour plus from 60 feet is deadlifting 300 pounds. You better create energy from the ground up with proper kinetic timing. Because if you don't do that when you're deadlifting, you're in traction for the next three weeks. Okay. So once again, there's a correlation, a huge correlation there that I don't think anybody's considering or they, they look at it and they ignore it. Number three, what you throw. Okay. And I have this ahead of the other ones because to me, sliders and split fingered fastballs are really tough on the elbow, especially for young pitchers. Okay. Split-fingered fastballs, especially with the throwing motions that professional pitchers are using, and the fact that when you split your fingers, you automatically put stress on your elbow. Same thing for the slider. If you're throwing a slider with improper kinetic timing and a poor throwing motion, that puts tremendous stress on the elbow. You can talk to um, pitchers about that. Okay, How often you throw? Rest and recovery. As with all exercises, that's your best friend. Number five, how hard you throw. That's way down on my list because for me, the velocity myth 
is the reason why it's way down on the list. But as with the fact, coupled with the fact that if you build a solid foundation, okay, from the ground up with proper timing, it will be able to support your velocity. Okay, number six, how much you throw. Okay, they're all in the shower by the fifth inning. So this is the last of my, on the list of the hows and whats. Okay, strength and conditioning. It will contribute as long as you have good DNA and a solid throwing motion. And without these two, I don't care how much you can squat and how far or fast you can run. Odds are you're headed to the injured list. And last but not least, diet and lifestyle. And I just say, see strength and conditioning. It can help, but you better have good DNA and a good throwing motion. Okay. And, and Dave, with this in mind, right, these are my, this is my list of developmental factors and what impacts development of a pitcher. Um, as far as, uh, that's the performance and also their arm injuries. Um, they all contribute, they all contribute, but getting back to the point of the puzzle. Okay. Diet and lifestyle is a much, it's a much smaller piece of the puzzle than DNA and how you throw. Okay. And my issue with the experts or what I, what I disagree with, with the experts, let's put it that way, is that they completely discount how you throw. And if they do consider it, I don't think they know what they're looking for based on the comments I've seen from the experts. And more importantly, the injured pitchers I've evaluated, whether it's shoulder, elbow, Tommy John, I have a file th- of, of pitchers who will throw exactly the same way before they're injured as, well, as after, after they're injured. There's been no adjustments at all in their throwing motion. And number two, my issue, the other issue I have, and this impacts what we talked about with youth pitchers, they continue to blame this epidemic on pitching injuries on velocity, yet they fail to mention the science, i.e., out of the hand versus crossing the plate, which I said was a 7, seven to 9% difference. And I cited Jordan Hicks. I could cite 100 pitchers, okay, who throws 100 miles an hour. If he was pitching and towed the rubber 40 years ago, he'd be thrown 91-93, okay? So as you said a couple podcasts ago, there always needs to be a but. Jordan Hicks throws 100, but if we're going to compare him to pitchers from 40 years ago, he throws 92 miles an hour, okay? Can't be any plainer than that. And those two issues for me are the biggest or two of the biggest issues that, that what I see and concern me with what youth pitchers are being sold, what they're being, what they see, what they read, what they're being taught. Yeah. What about, uh, you brought up uh, something you, you read by a famous New York sports writer there, Mike, Mike Lupa. I guess he's a TV star too, right? Because he's on Around the Horn and all, all of our writers are now TV stars too. But uh, I think that kind of fits into what you're saying about being responsible. Yeah. Um, listen, I, as with anybody that I might've mentioned on these podcasts, right. I'm not, I'm not looking to uh, pick a fight with anybody or throw anybody in the bus. Um, I, everything I've researched and what I see, um, I'm willing to talk to people about it where they can show me where I'm, where I may be looking at the wrong way or my thinking is misguided. And, you know, as we're all in the position, I hope we're, we're looking to learn. Right. But when I see these quotes, 
I just kind of shake my head and have some some questions, right? So it, there was an article that Michael Lapica wrote, and I've read him for years. He's he's really a good writer. I I've enjoyed reading uh, reading his articles and his columns, right? Um, but he interviewed. It was an article about pitching, and and um, he interviewed Buck Showalter, right? So l- let's let's look at Buck's comments first. He goes at his and he's talking about Snell. He goes at his best. Snell is one of these guys who seems to be pitching downhill. Okay. I have photos of Blake Snell with his timing in his arm path. There is no way he does not. He cannot throw the baseball downhill with this arm path. So I don't know. I play with Buck Showalter. Great respect for him. I'm sure he is. He's highly respected. I don't know what Buck is talking about here. Um, maybe somebody can enlighten me. Right. Uh, and then he goes on to say that, um, um, then Lapica goes on to say, but then Buck added this about starting pitchers. You can scout all you want. You can project all you want, but in the end, you just never know. Okay. I totally disagree with that. Okay. Because I've read a lot of scouting reports about youth, about amateur pitchers and draft picks that I'm, I'm, I was looking to evaluate and I Googled there and I checked their scouting reports out. I, w- I want to see what the scouts were saying. So, the scattering reports all talk about velocity and spin rate. As I mentioned to you, I saw one out of about 40 to 50 scattering reports that said he has a little unusual delivery. Now, this delivery was not unusual. It was one of the top three worst I've ever seen. And I, as I mentioned to your audience before, I've evaluated over 550 injured minor league and major league pitchers. But that's besides the point. So my feeling is that when one scouts a pitcher, it all depends on what one is looking for, okay? Now, when one projects, it depends on what knowledge and past data one chooses to use. I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and I said, I don't understand this. They're looking at these hurlers, and they're looking to give them six, seven-year contracts. They've had Tommy John surgery. They've had shoulder issues. They've had lat injuries. I go, doesn't that, isn't that a factor? And the ex-pitcher said to me, no, they don't really look at that. I go, how could they not look at that if they're looking to project, okay? Especially in light of they're throwing exactly the same way before they had Tommy John surgery, after Tommy John surgery. There's been no adjustments whatsoever, and yet they're willing to say, hey, Mr. Burroughs walks in, he wants seven years, we'll give you seven years, okay? There is no pitcher today, maybe outside of Garrett Cole, okay, and he's 34 years old, that I would give more than two years in a contract. I would probably give him 50% more for those two years and then maybe give him additional options at 50% more. But I'm going, if you're looking to project, okay, and I'm sorry, you know, about what Buck said, but I'm going, we talked about pieces of the puzzle. Well, his throwing motion and his injuries and and his injury history to me, when I'm doling out hundreds of millions of dollars, is a huge piece of the puzzle. It's probably the biggest piece of the puzzle. Okay. And I don't want to belabor the point with the different pitchers, but, you know, that to me is startling because uh, I disagree 100%. Uh, and last but not least, as Lapika continues, he goes, There's always luck, good and bad, no matter what kind of resume they have about their shoulders and elbows. And he goes on to speak about Avaldi, who's had two Tommy John surgeries. And that he pitched like a legend this fall with the Rangers. Okay. 
So with all due respect to Mr. Lapika, okay, one has less luck if they're driving 120 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour zone. Okay. And I think I've heard this quote as, as you have in, in your listening audience that well-respected and highly esteemed coaches have always made the comment that um, successful people make their own luck. Okay. So there's luck in everything you do in life. Okay. But it gets back to everything we've talked about. If I'm throwing the baseball, okay, with horrendous lower half ball timing, and I have a throwing motion that basically I'm deadlifting 300 pounds with my arms, I haven't created a lot of luck there. Okay. Okay. What I'm doing is put myself in a, in, in a, in a, in a huge position to have a significant arm injury. Now, I'm not blaming Mike Lapica. I don't even know if he's thrown a baseball in his lifetime. And I'm sure he's very knowledgeable. But when I read something like that and they talk about pitching and luck, I'm going, well, is that the pervasive thought throughout the entire major league front offices? That is just a question of luck? Because I have photos of 550 pitchers and I go, this is why there's no luck. <laughs> right? So once again, I, I, I look at this and I read this and I go, I got a lot of questions here, what your thought process is. And I'd love somebody to enlighten me uh, because I'm always looking to see where I need to correct myself. I like it. I, I looked that up after you sent it to me. And the, you know, the issue is we're with how accessible everybody is now, including us. We're responsible for what we say, but we, we always caution our audience just like you do. I always tell them no matter what show you're listening to, whether it's ours or somebody else's, do your own homework. Challenge us. Poke holes in what we say. I mean, that's that's why we started this whole network and, and added each podcast bit by bit. Um, and I think that's why our audience has responded. Almost we're, we're closing in on 64,000 subscribers today. And I, I think we're, uh, we're attracting an audience that likes to question. And I think that's a good thing. I think we're, we're, we want to reinforce that, including on us. So oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. <laughs> and, and with that in mind, and once again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm not here to pick on Michael Peak and Buck Showalter. I mean, this is just, you know, I have 70 other comments that are similar to this, right? It just happened to be something I saw yesterday that just struck a nerve and I go, I don't understand this, right? It doesn't make any sense to me. But this is one I really don't understand. And this gets to the heart of the matter, what we just spoke about as far as development and what they see and what they consider, okay? Because to, to get to back to Buck's comment about, um, you know, projecting, uh, in the end, you just never know, Okay. As far as knowing, it depends on what you're looking for and what you're evaluating. But there was an article here, okay, just bear with me one second, that was written in, in MLB.com again this past week. And a pitcher, there was a pitcher from the Tigers, and it was the pitcher that was referred to, I referred to earlier about the writer who spoke about this pitcher who had a great September and he, his ERA was 2.80. So it's just interesting that after he went on talking about this pitcher and how we forecast him to be potentially have a, a very successful season going forward, right? The comment he made, excuse me one second here. I just lost this here. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, that's what happens when I'm playing with my... Uh, here, with my, by the, by the computer. Back the comment he made, the comment he made was after talking about this pitcher's upside. Okay. I had to go down to the sixth paragraph 
Okay, for the writer to say it was, of course, just 80 innings. And that September, it came against some terribly weak lineups. Okay, so once again, perspective and piece of the puzzle. I'm not taking any away from Tarek Skubal or the writer in this particular situation. But with anything else, we talked about context. Now, I'm not saying Skubal is not going to have a, a, a productive 2024. But if you're talking about somebody and what their past performance was and projecting it, okay, <laughs> to, be, to, to, to hide in the sixth paragraph that he pitched against a bunch of minor leaguers, I'm going, well, maybe that 280 is not as relative as you think it is, right? Um, just, as, just as an example. But the thing that struck me about Skubal, and I do this all the time when I look at pitchers, and gets back to my comment about not making any adjustments pre-post-surgery. So my assumption is they feel that the throwing motion has nothing to do with their injury. Tyler Skubal, I read this quote in the article, said, I've been able to make some tweaks to my mechanics. Skubal told MLG, MLB's Jason Beck. I've been able to hammer out some kinks that are going to take a little bit of the stress off my arm, which we've been talking about the ability to reduce the stress on your arm to reduce your risk of injury. That makes sense, right? And he goes, and help use my body the right way. Makes sense. That's what I've been talking about. That's the positive for me that I'm going to take out of this, right? So Scooble, in his mind, thinks he's made adjustments in the throwing motion. And I say, that's great. That's good for you. I looked at his throwing motion 2022 pre-surgery, okay? That was for a flexor. I looked at 2023 post-surgery, okay? Now, as a caveat, he had Tommy John surgery in 2017 and was the number one pick of the Tigers in 2018. And let me add this. He played for five different Tigers minor league teams, okay? So first point, his motion pre-surgery in 2022 is exactly, exactly the same as 2023. Okay. So I'd like to know, and I'd like to ask Tyler or anybody in the Tiger organization, what was he told? What were they or he looking at for him to think that he's made adjustments? Because he has to make adjustments in a throwing motion. Okay. And I feel sorry for him that he thinks he's made adjustments and he hasn't made a single adjustment because, as my friend said, I could overlay the post-surgery photos on top of the pre-surgery photos, and you wouldn't be able to tell a difference. So once again, let's wrap this up. I have questions. What are they looking at? In this case, what is he being told or what is he being shown to make him think that he's made adjustments in his throwing motion that's going to reduce the stress in his arm and to help us use his body the right way? By that, he means creating energy from the ground up, which will reduce the stress on his arm and decrease the risk of arm injury. Okay. And I'm telling you right now, the other factor was this throwing motion pre-surgery, the fact that he played for five different Tiger minor league teams and they all said you're good to go is a complete injustice to this young man. Because after Tommy John surgery and being the number one pick at 18, 19 years old, there is no way I would have let this young man play catch with me 
unless he showed me he can throw the bail properly to create kinetic timing from the ground up. Why? To reduce the stress on his arm and help him use his body the right way. I don't understand this at all. At all. <laughs> at all. Dead serious. Worth looking into it. I And uh, closing in on well, over an hour today, but the audience has been, I'm sure has been enjoying the stuff we're giving them. You wanted to end it with a book of the week. Oh, yeah. I thought it'd be kind of fun um, yeah. I, you know, yeah. for your audience. Um, and um, there's what I got? There's two, two books um, that I read that I thought you might enjoy. Give me one second here. Okay. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, some of them will be sports books. Some of them are other books I read are interesting. But I highly recommend these two books. I'll give you two books of the week. The first is My Home Team with Dave Kindred. Um, I saw this and it was given to me by a friend. He was a um, highly respected uh, sports writer who was a reward award-winning journalist for the Washington Post. And he takes you through his journey writing. There's some great anecdotes about sports across the board. And it's also a really endearing story and compelling story about how we went back to his hometown and, and actually started writing for the girls basketball team in Illinois. Um, I think your readers will love it. He's a very good writer. Um, the other book was I enjoyed was um, The Last Folk Hero about Bo Jackson, written by Jeff Perlman. Uh, also a very good writer. If you're a sports fan, there's some great anecdotes, uh, great stories about Bo. It's written very well, and it's a really great look into his um, into his uh, athletic um, um, uh, career and uh, and and uh, and his performance and uh, kind of the we talked about DNA, some of the funny anecdotal stories that uh, Perlman has as far as what Bo was able to do and why they referred to him as Superman. Um, but I would highly recommend b reading both of those books. Yeah, great. I, I've uh, loved the history of Bo Jackson. It's uh, we, we had a chance to spend some time with him at a couple of his Bo Bike Bama <laughs> events. And uh, he's one of, I'm not a big autograph collector, but he, he was nice enough to autograph a baseball jersey for us supporting his event for my son Tanner and uh, his number 29 college jersey for him. So it's one of two autographs. But Tanner had an interesting question for him. He was, uh, he was probably, I don't know, three or four years old. So he had asked him or he consoled him on not being named uh, number one on the greatest athlete of all time and being beaten by, I think it was Secretariat, being beaten by a horse. Tanner assured him that he would have voted for him. So I'm sure <laughs> you're both. Well, both the, cool, the cool thing I liked about Bo is that he didn't care. Okay. Bo, Bo, Bo I mean, I'm not going to speak for Bo, but I got from the book that he just played because he loved it. Uh, but you know, I'll share one story where there were tons of stories where athletes just stopped and said, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> there was a ball that went foul and there was a five foot fence and they said, Bo Jackson stood next to the fence and just jumped over the fence to get the ball. Oh, yeah. there was, <laughs> there was a story and some of them they've gotten, uh, we visited where he's from in Bessemer, Alabama. And, uh, there's a story where Steinbrenner came down, the Yankee scouts came down to watch him hit in the cage and. He took one swing and with the swing, he, he hit the ball so hard, the cage collapsed. And uh, so there's there's all sorts of oh, yeah. interesting stories around Bo. But uh, if, you're we'll, we'll fan, if you're a sports fan, I'll, I love those books because of the anecdotes. I love I love watching reading books and even watching uh, music uh, documentaries where their peers um, and the audience and their peers speak about them. Oh, yeah. They're um, in awe. And, and then I go, you know, I watched the I watched one called 20 foot, 20 feet from stardom about backup singers, which was cool. On, on, but the cool thing was about Sting and and uh, Bruce Springsteen and all these artists 
were talking about how talented these backup singers were, which to me was really cool about it. Yeah, anyway, so. Yeah. Well, we're, uh, if you don't mind, I know we're getting ready to uh, launch, you're getting ready to launch the website. You want to give the website uh, right now or you want to hold it off till next no, week? No, real quick though, we're, we're almost there. We're 99% there. I'm just making a couple of tweaks. Um, it's the, it's athleticpitcherseries.com and um, it'll be launched within the week. Um, and, um, there's a, uh, it's really easy. It's all click on baseballs. And what I've done is tried to provide the opportunity for individuals and coaches to be able to buy the series and be able to buy online instruction, um, and, and view my videos and, 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 and et cetera. So, um, I'll just give you a shout out, but we're really close. I finished the final edits and, uh, I'm just looking to make a final tweak or so. Um, but I'm hoping that's something that your audience would enjoy looking at and, uh, and uh, perusing around. Yeah, no, it's great. We're looking forward to it. And we'll, we're going to be announcing another movement forward with our entire network next week, which will benefit our hosts in a number of different ways. But we'll also allow our audience to have a, a closer reach to our hosts and, and gain their knowledge in a number of different ways. So we're excited about that. We'll, we'll probably announce on Sunday night or Monday. Okay. Uh, but with that, we got uh, episode 410 here on Real Voices of the Game. Uh, happy to be here with Jim Colonel, the arms race. Another great show, Jim. And this is the front end of a double dip today. We got Sal Marinella with the hot corner following this up. And with that, uh, thanks for a great show. An audience, 60, almost 64,000. See if you can get to 65 by the end of the week for us here. But uh, we appreciate you guys and support our sponsors. They certainly support us. So with that, have a great day, guys. Jim, have a great day. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it.